You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, December 9th, 2021. I'm Cutta Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, I go over updates in campus news and explain the details of a sting operation in northern Colorado. After that, I go over COVID-19 statistics and speak with Mona Shaw from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundations about public understandings of racial inequality in health. Then, Coda tells us about federal court cases, and we hear from Grant Helzer and Adam Thomas about the current Aylesworth Hall exhibit in the Visual Arts Building. After that, the KCSU News team discusses the impacts of social media. To conclude today's show, Coda explains some updates on technology with details on the Biden administration's work to combat climate change. Let's move right into campus and local news. This is Ellie Shannon with your campus and local news. Colorado State University students are nearing the end of the semester as finals week are next week. Remember that the Rocky Mountain Review will return after CSU's winter break ends. If you are a student at CSU and enjoy winter sports, SkiSU can help you with that. The SkiSU program is CSU's own ski bus that transports students to and from different ski resorts on the weekends. For each trip, up to 40 tickets are available, each for $23. Starting January 22nd, the bus will go to different resorts such as Copper, Winter Park, and Steamboat. For more information on dates and trips, visit collegian.com. According to CSU communication staff at Source News, an international coalition co-led by CSU has announced a $19 million research project aimed at understanding how a farmer or rancher's grazing management decisions impact soil health on pasture and rangelands. Grazing management has become vital in the United States, since it can help a farm be more productive and help to curb overall climate change. The Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research awarded Noble Research Institute a $9.5 million grant to lead this research project. Francesca Cotrufo, professor in the Department of Soil and Crop Sciences at CSU, will co-lead on this research. The project is bringing together researchers from 12 nonprofit organizations and for-profit businesses, private research institutes, and public universities in the United States and the United Kingdom. To learn more about the project, visit agsci.source.colostate.edu. Now on to local news. Four people have been arrested in a sting operation for allegedly seeking sexual contact with underage children, according to Sadie Swanson of the Coloradoan. With help from Colorado Bureau of Investigation and Homeland Security, the Larimer County Sheriff's Office conducted the sting at two separate locations from December 1st through 3rd. Larimer County Sheriff Justin Smith said in a Facebook post on Tuesday, quote, Operations like this are very detailed in their planning and staff-intensive in their implementation. However, protecting our children from sexual predators is a top-tier priority for our community, end quote. There has been a rise in child abuse cases in northern Colorado in recent years. For more information on this story and to find resources, visit coloradoan.com. According to J.C. Marmaduke of the Coloradoan, Wellington's marijuana ballot measure has officially passed. Wellington is about a 20-minute drive from Fort Collins, and the town repealed its ban on marijuana dispensaries. In February, voters favored ballot measure 2B by an astounding one-vote margin, with 1,678 voting yes to dispensaries 
and only 1,677 voting no. There will be a specific type of commercial zoning district that any dispensary will have to reside in. It will have to be 2,000 feet from schools, 500 feet from areas zoned as public, 500 feet from other marijuana stores, and 200 feet from residential areas. The town will have a tax of 3.5% on marijuana, and taxes will fund construction of a recreation center or be used for other general expenses. For more information, visit coloradoan.com. Rocky Mountain National Park remained closed in the area of the Fall River entrance yesterday afternoon after a park ranger ex- exchanged gunfire with a suspect reportedly involved in a vehicle pursuit. According to Sadie Swanson of the Coloradoan, the ranger contacted two people who were in a vehicle pursuit earlier in the day. During the altercation, the ranger was shot, but his ballistic vest protected him from the bullets. The ranger and an injured suspect were taken to the hospital for treatment. The investigation is still active, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation is leading it. For more info, visit coloradoan.com. Thanks for listening to my local and campus news updates, and for listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. This is Ellie Shannon for KCSU on 90.5 FM. If you missed any of this newscast, check out the full episode of today's Rocky Mountain Review by downloading the KCSU app. This is DJ Hurricane thanking you for listening to KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Kota Babcock, and you're listening to COVID-19 Updates for Thursday. Colorado State University reports over 4,500 cases of COVID-19 since the university began recording cases in May 2020. Over 99% of on-campus students and 98% of university employees submitted either a vaccination record or exemption to CSU, and over 90% of students and employees are vaccinated against the virus that causes COVID-19. Larimer County reports a high-risk score for COVID-19, along with over 47,000 cases and nearly 400 deaths. The county's case rate sits at over 230 cases per 100,000 residents, and 75 COVID-19 patients receive treatment in area hospitals. Intensive care unit utilization is at 105% of its normal care levels. Larimer County and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. Masks are required in all indoor public spaces in the county, regardless of your vaccination status. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. Wear masks, including in private indoor spaces, if members of another household are present. Be sure your mask has a snug fit, and consider wearing a KN95 mask. Postpone all gatherings if possible, 
and if the event must occur, consider requiring all attendees to be vaccinated or limiting the number of invited households. If the event is indoors, consider moving it outdoors. Monitor your health and get tested for COVID-19 if you have any concerns over exposure or symptoms. The state of Colorado reports just under 850,000 cases of COVID-19 in the state and is nearing 10,000 deaths. 8.9 million vaccines have been administered in the state, and over 3.7 million Coloradans are fully immunized against the virus that causes COVID-19. The state reports that over 75% of eligible people are immunized with at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. The CDC reports over 49.3 million cases of COVID-19, along with nearly 789,000 deaths. Community transmission is considered high in most U.S. states, including Colorado. About 76% of people over the age of 5 received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. Information from today's segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the Centers for Disease Control. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. As always, if you missed any part of today's show so far, make sure to check us out on Apple Podcasts or Spotify by searching KCSU News. You can also visit us online at kcsufm.com news or download the KCSU app available on Google Play and the Apple App Store. For more information on the Omicron variant, tune in to our national news segment coming up in about 15 minutes. Today, I'm joined by Mona Shaw of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to discuss a new survey conducted that found that racial inequality is less likely to be understood by the general public. So before we move into the topic, would you mind giving our listeners some background on yourself and the organization you represent? Hi, thanks for having me, Koda. I'm with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is a health philanthropy that focuses on building a culture of health, which means that everyone has an opportunity for their best health possible. And thanks again for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for joining me today. So this recent survey showed that the public is less likely to recognize the racial disparities in justice and other factors like health than they were following the murder of George Floyd. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this research was conducted and why that matters when getting public opinions? Sure. So for the last 18 months, we've been serving 4,000 Americans across the country to see how the pandemic has impacted their attitudes and beliefs around health, structural racism, equity, and COVID-19. You know, this is such a unique point in time, given that we're all managing through a pandemic. We wanted to see how people's views may have changed, you know, during this once-in-a-lifetime event. So one of the findings we saw was that we saw a decrease in people's connection between structural racism and health. We surveyed them in July of 2020, and two-thirds of Americans saw this connection between health and structural racism. But then when we surveyed them again in uh, September and October of this year, we saw that 50% of Americans didn't see the connection between health and structural racism. So that awareness around how structural racism works and its impact of health, you know, waned over the course of the 18 months. All right. And then in the summer of 2020, when the country was really focused on racial inequality, it was very focused on policing. How do you think that might have really limited people's understanding to just the justice system or even just explicitly to police when understanding racial inequality as opposed to understanding the justice system as a whole and the health system as a whole when it comes to racism? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in June of 2020, right after George Floyd's death, the Black Lives Matter movement. And then we really saw 
uh, how COVID-19 impacted communities of color. So there was a lot of awareness and um, information around how structural racism works. You know, I think structural racism is a complicated issue. And so, uh, you know, unfortunately in, in the last 18 months, I think there's less attention been been placed on how structural racism helps. And that doesn't only impact COVID-19, but it impacts, uh, you know, criminal justice, as you mentioned, impacts maternal health, cancer outcomes. Structural racism impacts every part of our lives. And, uh, you know, I think that awareness has unfortunately waned over the last 18 months. So there, it's imperative that groups like the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and others really increase awareness about this issue. And this survey has helping do that. All right. And then for those who might not be familiar, can you discuss the disparities in maternal health, especially in maternal survival after having a child? Yeah. So thanks for asking that question. So Black and Indigenous uh, birthing people are uh, three to four times more likely to die at childbirth compared to um, white birthing people. And there's a huge disparity in in maternal and infant outcomes as as it relates to birth equity. So one of the things we are working on is raising awareness about these inequities and and hopefully uh, implementing policy and system changes that make it make birthing less of an issue for uh, Black and Indigenous birthing people. All right, before we move on from this topic, can you discuss other health issues such as tobacco use that are really prominent in people of color and how different aspects of structural racism has really played into this issue? Yeah, uh, so for tobacco specifically, tobacco companies have been targeting Latino, Black and Indigenous communities through marketing, through you know direct consumer outreach, and you really see that disparity in, in in death rates related to tobacco among you know certain communities compared to others. So one of the things we want to do is raise awareness about this targeting of Black and Hispanic communities to make sure that you know we we stop these practices that tobacco companies have been used to to really target communities of color. All right. So with COVID-19 having a significant impact on Black, Native, and Latinx American communities, how did this survey really show public understandings of racism's impact on health compared to other topics? Yeah, I think in the beginning of uh, the survey in June of 2020, we really saw more Americans understand the connection between COVID-19 and structural racism. You know, I think in the in the last 18 months, people's understanding or exposure to to the connection between COVID-19 and structural racism has sort of waned. I mean, even though we all know and the literature and the data show that COVID-19 impacts uh, communities of color um, disproportionately, I think that awareness has unfortunately waned among uh, the American population. All right. And then within that survey, are there any noticeable changes in whether or not people trust the government with COVID-19 becoming very politicized? Were there also any racial or gender gaps within previous demographic information that might have led to changes in the survey? Yeah, I mean, in the course of the 18 months, we really saw a a decrease in trust in uh, state government. And when we first surveyed people in June of 2020, there was high trust in state government. And there was lower trust in federal government. You know, when we surveyed them again in September and October of this year, saw a huge decrease in trust in state government, especially in the Northeast and in the Midwest. 
And, you know, this could be due to conversations about masking, vaccines. And, you know, I think one of the things that we want to emphasize is to rebuild that trust, we need to build transparency in state government. We also need to make sure that community members are involved in the design and engaged in the policymaking process, because that helps build trust if people are involved and know what, what is really happening and how decisions are being made in both the state and federal government. All right. And then while we're on the topic of really community engagement with this, these efforts, how can individual community members, especially from our region of Northern Colorado, really get involved in creating the changes that they want to see? Yeah, I mean, there is a big effort in having people in the community more involved in the policymaking process. So, you know, volunteering for local boards, reaching out to your elected officials, and uh, really, you know, expressing your opinion about what the community needs is, is really important to make sure our voices are heard in the, in, you know, in the state and federal government. All right. And then is there anything else that you'd like to add today? So if you want more information about the survey, you could uh, go to rwjf.org backslash COVID survey, and you could read more about the survey and how the attitudes have changed over the last 18 months. All right. Thank you so much again for your time. Thank you, Koda. Nice to talk to you. for KCSU comes from Nosh Noko, a locally owned food delivery service from local restaurants that want to provide food delivery to the Noko community. Learn more about the Noko Nosh app and how to order food at nokonosh.com. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to National News Highlights for December 9th. California's legislator, along with several reproductive clinics in the state, plan to serve as a sanctuary state for abortion if Roe v. Wade is overturned. According to Adam Beam at the Associated Press, abortion allies in the state's legislator proposed options that may provide money to pay for travel costs and lodging for those seeking abortion as part of its plan. In preparation for the Supreme Court's upcoming decision on the future of Roe v. Wade, the California Future of Abortion Council created a list of 45 recommendations for California in the case that the law is overturned. Some of the recommendations came from state lawmakers and Governor Gavin Newsom. The state of California currently offers funding for abortion for low-income residents and requires private insurance companies to cover abortions to some extent. Due to a surplus in California's budget of about $31 billion, the state is not worried about finding money to support abortion seekers from other states. U.S. District Court Judge Otis D. Wright II in California dismissed Rose McGowan's case against Harvey Weinstein. 
McGowan accused Weinstein of raping her in a hotel room in 1997 and worked on a memoir explaining the details of the incident. Weinstein's legal team obtained a copy and worked to actively discredit McGowan and her experiences. As a result, she filed a lawsuit against Weinstein and his legal team for racketeering, which Wright dismissed. Weinstein was convicted for sexual assault and rape last year and is serving 23 years in prison. Weinstein's legal team praised the U.S. District Court for tossing McGowan's lawsuit, stating, quote, A chapter is put behind as Mr. Weinstein keeps going forward to demonstrate the truth, end quote. J.P. Morgan Chase predicted that 2022 would provide an end to the COVID-19 pandemic and full economic recovery from the pandemic. According to Matt Egan at CNN Business, this prediction came in a note to clients Wednesday from Marco Kolonovic, who serves as J.P. Morgan Chase's chief global market strategist. The note also predicted an 8% growth rate for the stock market. Kolonovic noted that due to stresses such as poor vaccine rates earlier this year and additional COVID-19 variants, Additional work has to be done in ending the pandemic. In the note, Kolonovic wrote, quote, As the recovery runs its course, markets will begin adjusting to tighter monetary conditions, a process that will likely inject volatility, end quote. In addition to addressing the pandemic as a market stressor, J.P. Morgan Chase also pointed to geopolitical conflicts and tensions, inflation, and energy crises as issues. Pharmaceutical giant Pfizer, who produced one of the most effective COVID-19 vaccines, says their booster can protect against the Omicron variant of the virus. According to Lauren Niergaard at the Associated Press, Pfizer said that while the first two shots are not enough when it comes to preventing Omicron infection, the booster offers 25 times the antibody response, which is vital to preventing Omicron transmission. The lab tests done by Pfizer's team lead the company to believe that booster shots for people of all ages are incredibly important in preventing worsening COVID-19 outbreaks globally. Pfizer Chief Scientific Officer Michael Dolston said, quote, This is comforting and a very positive message that we now have a plan that will introduce immunity that is likely to protect from infection, symptomatic illness, and severe disease from now across the entire winter season, end quote. That's all for national news. Now we're going to hear from Adam Thomas and Grant Helzer about the current Aylesworth Project exhibit. If you missed any part of today's show so far, make sure to check us out on Apple Podcasts or Spotify by searching KCSU News or visit us online at kcsufm.com news. If you don't have a streaming app but want to listen to us on your mobile device, download the KCSU app available on Google Play and the Apple App Store. Today, I'm joined by Grant Helzer of the Echotech and Dr. Adam Thomas, an assistant teaching professor of history. The Ellsworth Project is on display at the Directions Gallery in the Visual Arts Building, just across from Canvas Stadium and Braden Hall at Colorado State University. This exhibition is ongoing and ends on January 21st. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So to get us started, would each of you mind introducing yourselves a little bit and explaining a bit about your roles in this exhibition? Yes, my name is Grant Helzer. Um, I'm one of the artists with the Echotech. Um, it's the two. It's between me and my brother, basically, and we're uh, we're sonic artists that are interested in historic preservation, and that's really what the project is about: is like history through music and art. And I'm Adam Thomas. I have specialties in uh, public history and architectural history, and I've had both of the Helzer brothers in my architectural history class. And in the two years that they were in the class, first with Grant and then with Brent, they brought the demolition, pending demolition of Aylesworth Hall to my attention and then began 
evolving an idea about preserving Aylesworth in a very novel way that someone, I have 20 years of experience with historic preservation, something I've never heard of before. So I offered as much support as I possibly could for them to develop this uh, idea. All right. And then this piece really serves as a way to commemorate the destruction of the building and also remember what it used to be. So would you mind explaining a bit of background on why Aylesworth was built and how it was used throughout the years? Yeah, I mean, it was used in a lot of ways. The um, original intention was that it would be a dormitory, and it was finished in the late 50s. And eventually they needed more, the campus needed more space to have classes. There was um, a big fire in the old main building, and that um, that took out a lot of classroom space. So it was worth to be used for classroom space as well. And for a long time, it was just like half dormitory, half classroom, and that really put a strain on all of the students living there because their their living cycle was disrupted. They they didn't have as much place to, to sleep and and eat and everything. So they eventually the campus approved it just simply for academic use. So there was offices in there, there was um, classrooms in there, and that was what it was for most of its life. All right. And then what do you feel that this piece represents in terms of understanding our changing campus and world? And both of you can answer this. I think it's, it, it is a, a bold step forward in historic preservation practice. Really, historic preservation in the United States is a relatively young concept. It comes from the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966. And in general, the tools given to us through that act and practice have been pretty limited when it comes to the actual demolition of a building. We tend to have measured drawings at best. Maybe you get a history, um, even maybe 3D modeling if you're really lucky. But all of those fail to capture what's really the essence of preservation, and that's the preservation of sense of place. You lose the emotional and human impact of buildings. And so the impact of this project is it preserves emotion. It preserves sense of place. It preserves that which is much more complicated in an intellectual level and really can only be achieved, I think, through music, that marriage with music and applying to those deep centers of the brain. And so it is a giant leap forward in historic preservation practice. For listeners looking to visit this exhibit, what can they expect to encounter when walking through it as it is based a lot on sound? Yeah, so the that's actually a complicated task to accomplish in the art building because there's always other background noises. So what we ended up having to do is we have our, our live performance played on loop. We recorded it back in May. And that's just projected onto one of the walls. And then we have a set of headphones in there that you can listen to it if you wanted to sit down and you can watch the video and listen to it. It's about 23 minutes long. But when you first walk in, we actually have artifacts from the building. So that's the first thing you see is pieces of the building. There's a piece of sandstone and there's some other pieces like concrete and for ceiling panels and different little bits from the building. And then there's some pictures we also took on one of the walls of the demolition. So as the building was being torn apart, we were there for the whole process over the first of those two months in the summer. And we just we took pictures of how like how it was deconstructed, basically. All right. And then um, a question for Grant specifically. How did you really come up with the idea of commemorating Aylesworth in this way? That is a really hard question to answer. It was a, it was really a process. Originally, it was going to be like a hard rock album, and we were just standing in the building. We knew it was going to be torn down, and we thought it'd be cool if we could like write a piece of music about a building being torn down, like a building at the end of its life. It's had sixty years, and like where is it now? 
what is it done and um, like how is it used basically and how is it not being used anymore and why does it why, why do people want it to be torn down and eventually realized that wasn't the way to commemorate it because it had nothing to do really with the building so as we were in the building we realized there's all these recording techniques that were developed in the 20th century taking resonant frequencies and building reverbs and whatnot and we were taking those from the building and realized we could make pieces out of like out of the actual materials of the building and the and sound of the building being torn apart. All right. And then a question for you, Adam. Um, how do you think that previous exhibitions led CSU to really recognize this story as one that was worthy of sharing in a gallery? Oh, that's pretty interesting. This university has not had a great track record uh, when it comes to historic preservation. At least that's the aspect of art I can speak to. And I actually was initially a little apprehensive about the idea of this project getting more traction and now particularly becoming an exhibit because of that that odd relationship the university has to its own built environment. But I think there's there's a reckoning going on right now and particularly a feeling that buildings like Aylesworth, these sort of unloved buildings on campus. I my office is in the Clark building, which is a desperately unloved buildings realizing that in their own time period, they were so important to turning this place from an agricultural college into a world-class university. And buildings like Aylesworth had such a, a vibrant life of creativity inside of them that the brilliance of this exhibit and, and sort of recognizing what's going on here is that it, it recognizes that these buildings incubated a brilliance that led to the Aylesworth project and what Brant and uh, Grant were doing. All right. And then in both of your eyes, how does this exhibition show a really fascinating way that different departments and fields of study can really work together for public works like this? Yeah, and I think that's just really key to the whole project was that it was interdepartmental. By this point, we've gotten three departments involved, and we never really were involved with the music department, but it is very much a, a music project. I think it's, I think it's key that we're, we're working in between all of the departments to build a project that we couldn't have done just on our, our, on our own in the English department. That's why we brought this to Adam Thomas, because we didn't know what to do when we first started out, and we wouldn't have known what to do. So getting all of those different voices in there and all those different ideas was really key to making the project happen. This is, for me, a plug of why a land-grant university like Colorado State University is just incredible organization because you can come up with an idea like this that squarely fits in no particular department and i can reach across to colleagues in different uh, departments and provide supports for students who want to do innovative projects like this and it's pretty impressive i gotta say there's been many times when i've talked to my colleagues who've been helping with this we're all in agreement that not a single one of us understands the whole thing uh, these guys have done such great intellectual heavy listing, but we all understand our little piece of it in one particular way. So we're glad to see this result. All right. And then this project is incredibly specific to CSU and CSU's history. What do you think makes this exhibit worth visiting for other residents of Northern Colorado who might have an interest in architecture or an interest in history, but not necessarily in CSU as a whole? I feel like for us, it was worth just a, like a launching point. And we really do want to expand it out to other buildings. So it could be anything. It could be a Victorian-era home. It could be like a Brutalist-style piece of architecture. So it's really not necessarily about Aylesworth specifically, but it's about like historic preservation as a whole. I would concur with this. The experience you're going to find there is an entirely new way 
of understanding buildings that no longer exist. This isn't the typical leave a cornerstone of a building in a corner of a museum, have a picture of it, and everybody remembers and laments, sort of like what we do with Old Main here on campus. This is an experiential moment that provides a new blueprint for what we can do in historic preservation. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today. Again, that was Grant Helzer and Adam Thomas, and they were discussing the Aylesworth Project at the Visual Arts Building on campus. Now we'll be right back, so stay tuned to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. Welcome, class. Today we'll be talking about the elements. We're going to start with boron, number five. This class is boron. (laughs) You know, Jimmy, boron is a trace element, so you actually need it to live. Wait a second. Who are you? I'm DJ Pompey. It's a crossover episode. Oh, I get it. So that's why science matters. That's exactly right, Jimmy. And it's why you should listen to me, DJ Pompey. And me, DJ Attorney at Law. On Thursdays from 5 to 7 p.m. to hear more about why science matters on our show, Science Matters. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. In CSU football news, Coach Steve Adazio was fired. In women's volleyball, the team has continued on their massive winning streak going 7-1, beating the UTSA Roadrunners. Their game this week is against Weber State. In men's basketball, the team remains undefeated, beating Little Rock and St. Mary's here in Fort Collins. Their next game is the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame Classic against Mississippi State. In women's volleyball, the team competed in the National Invitational Volleyball Tournament. They won their first game against Houston Baptist and lost their final game against UTEP to end their season. In cross country, the women placed 17th in the NCAA Championship to end their season. If you are interested in student tickets, go to csuram.evenue.net to get tickets for men's and women's basketball and more. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. Today on the Rocky Mountain Review, we're bringing back an old segment, which we refer to as roundtables. And during this, we go over the different perspectives there are on an issue. Today, we're going to be discussing social media, its mental health impacts, as well as its social impacts. So we're going to start out with the negative impacts, which I'm going to start out a little bit. I think that social media has really impacted how news organizations like our own operate because we really do have to focus a lot on countering misinformation in a way that we never have before. So now I'm going to be asking our producer, Portia. Portia, what do you think is one of the hardest negative impacts when it comes to youth and social media? Yeah, that's a great question, Coda. I think for me, one of the 
biggest issues that I see is the unrealistic expectation of oneself and self-image. You know, social media has really turned into making sure that an individual posts the best picture with the best outfit at the best location, with the best filter, with the best group of friends. And it's really caused people to only be able to showcase and highlight only the most beautiful, most positive aspects of themselves, which is great. But in turn, that causes individuals to have that unrealistic expectation of oneself that they can only be perfect. And in reality, being human means being imperfect. All right. And then do you think that that has at all led to more bullying at school or even just online cyberbullying? I do. I do definitely think that it can lead to bullying, in-person bullying, as well as online cyberbullying, which is very scary in itself because, you know, studies have shown that um, the effects of cyberbullying and bullying do cause greater chances for anxiety, depressions, feeling of loneliness, among many other mental health issues. And then, Ellie, what do you think about the trend of deactivating social media accounts for a set period of time? A lot of people do it for mental health reasons, but there's definitely other reasons. Yeah, so I see a lot on social media, a lot of my friends even, trying to deactivate their accounts. They'll post a picture saying, hey, I'm done with Instagram for a while, or I'm deleting Snapchat for a while. And I always think like that it's a great idea. I think about doing it for myself just to take that break. But at the same time, I see a lot of these people not sticking with it. Um, I see a lot of people that will delete it for one day, and then the next day they're posting things again. And so I just think that Social media is honestly addicting a little bit, and I think that people struggle with deactivating their accounts to actually take a mental health break just because it's so enticing and so appealing to so many people because it's curated to fit all of your needs, and it, social media shows you exactly what you want to see. And so um, I just think that deactivating accounts, if we could stick with it more, I think it would actually have a better impact on us. All right. So now we're going to be moving into the positive impacts because obviously social media wouldn't be there if it wasn't enjoyable and if it didn't offer some, some type of helpful content to our lives. So Portia, what do you think some of the positive impacts are? One of the biggest impacts, positive impacts that I see social media giving adolescents or anyone in general is the ability to reach people worldwide, creating social connections and helping young people build connections with peers they may not have necessarily met outside of a social media platform setting. Um, there was a study by Williams and Johnson that found young people with international friendships and connections have higher scores of open-mindedness, cultural empathy, and social initiative and flexibility. This information actually comes from a recommendation report that I recently wrote for one of my courses here at CSU. I think that social media is super helpful for staying in touch. I know that I'm friends with people that I went to like elementary school with on Facebook and seeing them like have their lives, graduate college, all of those things is super um, important in like motivating myself sometimes. I think that it also offers this access to new viewpoints that we don't necessarily get in any other way. We won't know what someone in Russia thinks normally if we're not on social media or using the internet in some way. And we won't know basically other viewpoints that don't exist outside of our like local geographic area, which if you live in certain cities, you might not ever hear any viewpoints that aren't liberal. If you live in rural areas, you might not hear any viewpoints that aren't kind of based on that understanding of life. And I think that really it offers this 
new source that people can just go to to hear other perspectives, which is super cool. And then turning to Ellie, what do you think is one of your favorite things about social media? Honestly, one of my favorite things about social media would be how entertaining it is. Um, I know that I was just saying that social media is addicting in a way, but at the same time, it does offer a source of entertainment for us. I was actually reading an article by Provoke Media, and Paul Holmes was saying that consumers believe social networks provide a higher value experience compared with other forms of entertainment. And I'd have to agree with that just because we have a lot of different apps that show a lot of different sides of the world, like you were talking about, Coda. Like Instagram, you can be scrolling and you can see images from China or India, anywhere in the world that you want to see, and it's right there. And I think that same with what you guys were saying, I also agree with that. It brings everyone together and um, it's just super entertaining. All right. And then that's going to conclude it for this episode. You can text us in at 970-491-5278-970-491-KCSU if you want to weigh in at all. Um, We will not be in the studio, unfortunately, to receive those messages, but we will try and grab them so we can feature them in our next episode of Rocky Mountain Review in January. So without further ado, we're going to move into our break. So stay tuned to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is Tech News for Thursday, December 9th. Instagram CEO Adam Mazzari testified Wednesday to the Senate in response to lawmaker concerns over harms Instagram caused to minors. According to Marcy Gordon at the Associated Press, senators demanded that parent company Meta make changes to increase safety and transparency. Senator Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut said that some of Instagram's new safety measures were clearly, quote, a public relations tactic, end quote. In his testimony, Mozeri denied that Instagram was more addictive for young users, pointing to the fact that meta-platforms are used by around 1 billion people of a variety of ages. One of the newest safety measures introduced by Instagram includes promoting teens to take breaks from the platform, something TikTok previously began doing after a user scrolls through videos for a set period of time. During the testimony, senators from both sides of the aisle showed anger and concern related to Instagram's mental health impacts on youth, especially young girls. President Joe Biden signed an executive order this week focused on moving the U.S. to carbon neutrality by 2050. According to Andrew J. Hawkins at The Verge, this executive order pushes the federal government to invest billions of dollars in electric vehicles, change how much power the government has in the shift to green energy, and more. While this will shift things relatively rapidly, the government would not be expected to stop buying gas-powered cars until 2027. Biden's 2050 deadline is based on scientists' concerns that a total shift is needed by that year to avoid climate catastrophes. This executive order generally follows the president's agenda to address climate change at a federal level. When rejoining the Paris Agreement, the Biden administration promised on behalf of the U.S. to cut emissions by over 50% this decade relative to the emission rates in the early 2000s. The Verge says that this executive order would, quote, direct the government to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by 65% by the end of the decade, end quote. After Amazon Web Services faced an outage Tuesday, the company says they fully recovered previously failing services. According to Vanessa Romo and Barbara Campbell at National Public Radio, 
The outages were experienced mostly along the United States' east coast earlier this week, with some other states experiencing issues as well. AWS hosts storage, cloud computing, and other network capabilities that companies or organizations can rent out for their site. Nearly every streaming site depends on AWS, including Netflix and Disney+. Even National Public Radio and other news organizations use their services, meaning that an outage could block a region from receiving nearly any news until servers are restored. That's all for Tech News. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. And now, for the weather. Today we saw cold and mostly cloudy skies with a high of 49 and a low of 28, with 10 mile per hour winds. Friday will cool down to a high of 36 with a low of 15, with cloudy skies and winds reaching 22 miles per hour. Saturday, temperatures will warm up a bit to a high of 44 and a low of 27, with partly cloudy skies and 7 mile per hour winds. Sunday will warm up once again to a high of 57 with a low of 29, again with partly cloudy skies and about the same winds. I'm Koda Babcock, and information for this segment comes from the Weather Channel. This is our last episode until 2022, so if you missed anything, make sure to check out our Spotify at KCSU News for the full version of today's episode. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, Hannah Hitchcock, London Shell, Michelle Ellis, David DeMuth, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Eliza Drodar, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mount Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ellie. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener, so thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time. <laughs>